0: Welcome to episode 27 of The Toth Zone, a podcast about how an obsession with music can give us a reason to live, but can also wreck our lives. I'm your host, James Toth. In late January 2011, I embarked on my first ever solo tour of Europe and the UK. I had toured overseas five or six times before, and was by now very proud of my heavily tattooed passport but I'd previously always traveled with a band, and always with a driver. This was going to be much different, as I would be traveling by myself, taking trains, buses, cabs, and small flights to my many destinations, with nothing but a prepaid international phone card and printed directions to guide me. The tour was 11 countries in 18 days. I am what is known euphemistically as a directionally challenged person. If I'm traveling somewhere in the car with my wife, Leah, and I tell her, I think it's a left here, she has learned that this means to go right. She is always correct. In this way, you can say I'm sort of a genius at directions, if an indication of genius is 100% accuracy every time, because I'm always wrong. If we're traveling together, and I am for some unfortunate reason the navigator, just do the opposite of everything I tell you, and we will arrive at our destination with time to spare. Any time I'd been to a non-English-speaking country prior to this tour, I had my band members, hosts, and traveling companions literally leading me by the arm. Like a lot of, uh, artistic people, I live a very interior sort of life, and when I'm traveling alone, you'd think I would rise to the occasion, but no. My absent-mindedness is even more pronounced when I'm by myself. I tend to get lost in my own head or my iPod or a book, and I board wrong trains, miss flights... Uh, inevitably traipse into the parts of strange towns that make RoboCop's dystopian Detroit look like an island paradise. When I'm driving, same deal. I get lost in some song that's playing on the radio, or I just start daydreaming, and before I know it, I notice that the sun seems to be inexplicably setting in the west. Have have I really been driving in the wrong direction for five hours? Yes. I think part of the reason for this is I didn't get my driver's license till I was 23 years old. When you grew up in New York, you really don't need a driver's license. Uh, Prior to getting one, my experience to being in a car was you get in at point A and you get out at point B. So I never noticed landmarks or turns or the names of roads. People like me are the reason GPS was invented. Well, me and the people the government wants to spy on anyway. Traveling long distances alone is lonely, invigorating, eerie, and liberating. But above all, it's educational. Just like I think everyone should spend at least one Christmas entirely alone, I think everyone should take at least one big solo trip in their life, because you learn a lot about yourself on such a trip. I've done many long solo trips, and I don't regret a single one. But traveling alone in a foreign country was new to me, and I was worried, and so was everyone in my life who cared about me, because none of us could imagine how I would successfully navigate myself around Europe unassisted. After all, I, I get lost going to the post office. All it takes to throw me is a road closure or a detour, and I'll soon find myself on the other side of town. People, including members of my band, were taking bets about whether or not I'd actually make it back home. There was also, on a solo tour, the downtime to consider. Now there's a phenomenon in the States that musicians refer to as hurry up and wait. You're required to load in in the early afternoon, you sound check at 5pm, and then you play at midnight. Those seven hours between are when drug habits and alcoholism are born. Venues and promoters, aware of the habits of late-arriving musicians, have learned to build in this extra time. But I am nothing if not punctual, compulsively so. And so I've spent the accumulated equivalent of weeks of my life wandering around cities, sometimes getting into trouble, sometimes getting lost, sometimes just nursing a single beer or coffee, sitting with a Newsweekly or a crossword puzzle, killing time. If you're lucky, the venue is in a neighborhood walking distance to a record store or something, but in my experience, the places I have often tended to be booked were rarely in the hip part of town. I used to joke that if you weren't sure where we were playing, just look for one of those predatory payday advance loan places, or a liquor store with bulletproof glass inside, and you're probably only a block or two away. Famous and popular touring bands don't need to experience these lonesome idle hours. They have day rooms for showering and napping, bunk beds on the bus, and other amenities. I've toured with bigger bands who've very generously shared their accommodations with me, but you usually only open for bigger bands in major cities, even when you were on the whole tour as a support act. You see, the more popular bands don't need to play tertiary markets in tiny cities along the way. In fact, for many of them, they have contracts that actually forbid them from doing this, due to something called a radius clause. So when you are the opening act on the tour and you have no such luxuries and no such clauses, you need to fill in the gaps and play on those days off. And so you find yourself wandering around rural Nebraska on a Wednesday night, buzzed on the warm beer in your backpack you stole from the green room the night before, missing your bed, wondering where it all went wrong. I offer this preamble as a contrast because touring in Europe by yourself is not like this at all. Sure, there are hours of boredom, long hours at train stations and lazing around the house of some new friend. But the sensory experiences are so wildly different, you find yourself constantly stimulated. Or you're forced to be hyper-vigilant and attentive, like when you have to change money twice in the same day, because Danish kroner and Norwegian kroner are different currencies, and you don't want the shame or awkwardness of trying to pay for something in a foreign currency. I remember one tour at the border. The band just threw our coins in the street, a gesture as symbolic as it was sad. You see, you can't change coins at the currency exchange, only paper money, which sucks when you visit countries for only 16 hours, and you're holding coins worth the equivalent of several U.S. dollars, but you know you won't be back anytime soon. And we could give the money away to suspicious strangers, we tried this, it was super weird, or try to buy as much gum and candy as you can at the train station, or keep the coins as souvenirs. But in the end, we just formed a circle and ritualistically tossed the money away. Maybe that was bad luck. Touring alone gives you a lot of time to take in the sights and to think, and also to create. Side story here, but one morning after a gig, I was traveling from Cork to Limerick, and I had to walk several kilometers to the bus station. I asked the promoter for directions, and he said, You take Mallow toward the river, and you'll pass Perry on the way. Immediately. My brain made Mallow a verb, Perry a person, and I began constructing a song on the spot. On the long walk to the bus station, I began writing in my head a sort of modern murder ballad, and by the time I arrived I had a finished song, based on the directions I was given. Mallow toward the river, passing Perry on the way. This song is on my album Clippership, and it's one of my favorite things I've written, even though Mallow isn't a reverb, you know, maybe it can be now, you know, to Mallow, sort of saunter, mosey. You know, I love sampling the native cuisine anywhere I go, and have as a result had some of the most extraordinary meals of my life overseas. I don't really have a bucket list or whatever, but I was determined to try Epoisse in France. Epoisse is a washed rind cow's milk cheese rinsed in brandy, and it's notorious for being one of the stinkiest cheeses in the world. So vile and potent is its stench that French law has officially banned Epoisse from the Parisian public transport system, I mean, it's actually illegal to carry it on your person. My wife Leah and I are really into cheese, and I vowed to her that I would try epoisse in France, which was difficult to find in the States. It did not disappoint. I convinced the members of my band to try it, and though they were reluctant at first, they were good sports and they gamely sampled some, and they all said the same thing everyone says when they eat a washed rind cheese. It smells awful, but it tastes really good. I remember we didn't have any crackers or a spreading knife or even a spoon. So we all passed around this very gooey and expensive stinky cheese and just ate it with our fingers while standing outside a venue. Good memory. And despite a lifelong aversion to mustard, I sampled several different varieties when I was in Dijon, because why not? And you know what? I found that if you can eat mustard in Dijon and still not like mustard, boy, you really don't like mustard. In my experience, uh, European hosts don't always believe you when you say you want the local stuff. German promoters always seemed particularly averse to serving me German food, always trying to treat me instead to Indian food or pizza. And one time, touring in Montreal with my wife, we asked some fans where would be a good place to eat before the show. And these well-meaning fans, knowing we were traveling from Kentucky, recommended a place they said we would love. So we followed their directions a few blocks until we arrived at the place they recommended. Is that a... Leah said, trailing off. Surely not, I said. But yes, Kentucky Fried Chicken. Pretty sure we still ate there, though. I don't care how you feel about fast food, but if you're an American and you've just spent two weeks eating lentils and Yorkshire pudding, and you spot a Burger King in the middle of Basel, you are going there, my friend. When I first started touring in Europe and the UK, every American band was treated like they were Led Zeppelin. I mean, they really rolled out the red carpet. The disparity between the way American bands are treated overseas and the way they are treated in their home country is pretty dramatic. Things like home-cooked meals and accommodations are a given. And no one's bummed when the crowds are smaller than expected, because no poor bastard promoter has to walk to the ATM at the end of the night to pay you your fee, because most of the shows are government-sponsored. Remember a few episodes ago when I told you about my band's nightly routine of begging the very crowd who paid to see us for a floor to crash on? That doesn't really happen in Europe. Now, I'm not saying all the accommodations are 4 star I've stayed on gymnasium floors and in numerous squalid anarchist hostels and countless gnarly squats. Like the one where my host produced a thin, soiled mattress from behind a stack of amps and proudly exclaimed, Many bands have slept on this mattress. The point is, though, you never find yourself trying to sneak into a just vacated Motel 6 at 3 a.m. And while I'll contend that there's nothing lonelier than foreign television, I've stayed in many beautiful, even opulent hotels and in far more nice places than not. Now, unfortunately, things have changed quite a bit since I started touring. The band The Mendoza Line, an amazing band, by the way, has a great song called Faithful Brother, which it always seemed to me was about how America sort of cashed in a lot of the goodwill during the George W. years, and that the perception of American tourists, which includes American touring bands, unfortunately, was swiftly changing for the worse due to our foreign and domestic policies. I've actually not been to Europe since Trump's presidency, but I imagine the situation's only gotten worse. I think next time I go, I'll just tell everyone I meet that I'm Canadian. The first time I embarked on a big tour of Europe, with a band, I was really green. My geography wasn't great, and my grasp of foreign languages was even worse. In the Toth Zone tradition of me telling you stories that make me look like a buffoon, I'll tell you that when I got the itinerary for my first long tour of Europe, I was so disappointed that the German cities I most wanted to visit weren't on there. Being a big Krautrock fan, in Germany, I of course wanted to see Cologne, home of Cannes, and Munich, home of Amandul and Embryo. Looking at the tour itinerary, I'd never heard of any of these places I was booked to play. What is München? Where the hell is Köln? Yeah, laugh it up, friends, but I know that while most of you are having a justifiable laugh at my expense right now, there are at least a few of you who are totally confused. You see, when you travel from a foreign country to the U.S., well, Baltimore is just Baltimore. Phoenix is just called Phoenix. But in Germany and many other countries, the cities we know by name are spelled and pronounced differently in the native language, and thus they look very different on road signs and train tickets and tour itineraries. I won't bore you with the details, but Munich and Cologne, for example, are the French names for those cities. The English names for those cities were, for whatever reason, taken from the French instead of the German. Other European cities with different names in English include Rome, Naples, Venice, Florence, Vienna, Warsaw, and Prague. Now, maybe this was done for profiling purposes, like how in New York I always knew I was dealing with a tourist whenever someone asked me for directions to Houston Street. Anyway, on this solo tour I was traveling with a backpack and a suitcase full of CDs and records. No guitar? Nope. I've revealed before on this podcast that I'm not really a gear guy, so on tour in Europe, I backline my guitars. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the term, backline means the club or promoter provides amps and most of the drum kit, as well as things like pianos and upright basses if you need them. Every band who tours overseas uses backline. For one thing, carting Marshall Stacks and Hammond organs overseas is prohibitively expensive. For another, there is the voltage issue. It seems like every other country has a different shaped wall outlet, and while you can buy adapters, I own an adapter for every Western European country, plug in my phone and iPod, but they are notoriously problematic on stage for some reason. Backline is convenient, but it can also be a hassle, especially if you're used to your own gear, because every piece of gear has its own idiosyncrasies. But there really isn't an alternative, so every band you have ever heard of likely has to play on subpar equipment, at least sometimes. But sometimes you get lucky. One time, on a duo tour of Europe with a pedal steel player, we were told that there was only one showbud pedal steel for rent in the entire small country we were playing. When we went to pick it up, the guy at the rental place said, You guys like Almond Brothers? We said, Of course we did. Dwayne, he said, motioning with his hand toward the instrument we were borrowing. That was the one Dwayne borrowed. How cool is that? So now you know what backline is, I am, to my knowledge, one of the only guitar players who backlines a guitar. Guitar players tend to be extremely particular about their instrument, but I'm really not. It really didn't matter to me what I was playing as long as it stayed in tune. And it's also really fun because you get to try out different guitars every night. Anyway, I really couldn't be bothered juggling my suitcase, all my merch, and a guitar through crowded trains and buses all over Europe. Now, just like with regular backline, this can go either way. Sometimes you just get a beat-up $100 Ibanez. Sometimes the promoter brings you his prized possession, a 1967 D-28 Martin, handed down from his father, who got it from Roy Harper. One time in Glasgow I was waiting to play, and I was starting to get nervous because the promoter had yet to secure a guitar for me to use for my set. I distracted myself by watching the opening act disembowel a three-quarter-size Epiphone Electric, jamming drumsticks between the strings, and literally stepping on the tremolo bar. I guess you can guess what happened next. Promoter came up and reassured me I'd have a guitar for my set. The opening band has a guitar you can use. My booking agent was astonished when I told him I wanted to backline my guitars. As I said, this really isn't done. We eventually worked it out so we were able to do it, but before that, he said the four words I most hate to hear when I am in Europe on tour. Four words that make me want to scream, cry, and punch something all at the same time. He said, Eh, it is not possible. Does every English-speaking European know this phrase? They must. It means, you're fucked. Hey man, do you think I can find a place to change my socks and maybe check email before sound check? Eh, it is not possible. The cafe is 5,000 kilometers from here and the wash closet is flood." Hey, any way I can take a later train tomorrow instead of leaving here in, oh, three hours to catch a rail at 3 a.m.? It is not possible, because the trains, there are on strike, so you will have to walk 6,000 kilometers to Valencia. I'm exaggerating, but not much. I learned very quickly that trains, especially in Italy, will stop running at random times due to striking workers. And hey, I'm all for striking workers, in Italy or anywhere else, but this was different. The metro employees would strike for the most mundane, arbitrary reasons, and often for just a few hours in the middle of the day, just long enough to totally fuck the schedules. One time, not on my first solo tour, but a few years later, I was changing trains somewhere in the middle of Italy, which is my favorite country, by the way, in case you think I'm shit-talking the motherland. Okay, so I'm between two major cities, Pisa and Ravenna, I think, and I have a long way to go. I'm in the middle of nowhere, like the Italian countryside, and I'm awaiting my connecting train. I hear a voice on the intercom, and while I don't understand the language, I know it's bad news, because everyone around me starts grumbling and slowly shuffling back to the station. What? What? I ask a stranger. Italy, I have been told, are just behind France in their unwillingness to speak English, and hey, good for them, but it sucks. I couldn't get an answer. I did the dumb American thing where I just started talking louder and slower at random Italian commuters. I need go here, I said, pointing to my now useless ticket. What train I take? No train, a kind woman eventually told me. Strike. Eh, wet leaves on track. Wet leaves on the track. Now, occasionally missing a connection in your home country is an unavoidable thing. In fact, I think I've missed more connecting flights than I've made. But what is a relatively minor inconvenience in the States is a major catastrophe in a foreign country where you don't speak the language. I was stranded. Wet leaves on the track. I found a payphone and I used my prepaid phone card, remember those, to call my booking agent, but he didn't answer. What now? I somehow managed to find the help desk, was told I'd have to take a bus. Great. You buy a ticket now, the man said. Where is the bus station, I asked in a panic. Oh, it's a zillion kilometers away. How do I get there? Taxicab. Can I get a refund on this ticket I'm not using, at least? It is not possible. Fine. Into a cab I go. Italians, I love you, I really do. Your country, your people, your cuisine. But all of your drivers are lunatics. There doesn't seem to be any real guiding principle to driving in Italy. I'm convinced the lines on the street are just there for decoration. The roads themselves don't help. Often they are narrow, circuitous, and maze-like, a result of both bombings and earthquakes. So they just sort of snake around every which way, up hills and around corners. Imagine if concrete actually grew in nature, like ivy. That's how a lot of the roads look. In the cab, I soon witnessed for the first time, but not the last... The custom of two passing cars driving so close on opposite sides of the road that the drivers have to retract their side view mirrors when they intersect, and this is just second nature. Imagine driving on a main street anywhere in America and having to actually pull in your side view mirrors every time a car was approaching from the other direction, and doing it without even pausing your conversation. Crazy. Pale with fear in the back seat. I usually take the front seat in these situations so as not to make the driver feel like they're my chauffeur, but today, for whatever reason, I opted for the back, and thank God. I held on as best I could as the driver took hairpin turns that might have made a stunt driver, or at least an American stunt driver, wince. We finally arrived at the bus station, and I paid the driver. That was, uh, some driving there, Mario Andretti, I said with a smile, grateful to have survived. Ah, the driver said, acknowledging, I am de pazzi. ''What's that?'' I asked him. ''Is that your name? De Potsy? The driver shook his head, thought about it for a second, and then translated into his best broken English. ''I am, a uh, one of the insane. I get on the warm, stuffy bus, bumping into people with my heavy luggage, and I find a seat. A few hours later, I'm at the gig, and it's awesome. Packed house, played an encore, sold a lot of merch. In the end, it's all worth it. In fact, this is a pattern on tour, especially solo tours.'' when there's far too much time to reflect. I often spend entire arduous days of travel wondering, why am I doing this? And by the end of the night, I feel like the luckiest person in the world. But I'm jumping ahead a bit. Back to my first solo trip, which definitely began on the wrong foot. There is a nor'easter along the east coast, so I am unsurprised to find that my flight to Newark has been cancelled. I'm now due to arrive in Barcelona at 4pm the following day, via Frankfurt, via Houston. This means I will not make my connection that I had booked from Barcelona to Valencia, which is near Castillon, my ultimate destination, and I'll have to rely on public transportation once I do finally arrive in Barcelona. I am seated beside a friendly but overly inquisitive German anesthesiologist named Fred. He has a firm handshake, and upon learning that I am a musician on tour, he promptly insists I autograph a page in his journal. I contemplate signing it Sufjan Stevens, but think better of it. The flight is booked solid, and the few remaining empty seats are swiftly commandeered by recumbent passengers. About an hour into the flight, a woman in first class suffers a panic attack, and my loquacious anesthesiologist is summoned forth to offer assistance. He switches seats with a visibly shaken old man who has just witnessed said panic attack. They end up administering red wine to the panic-stricken woman to calm her down. I bet she got it for free. I make a mental note to remember that trick. A few hours pass, and now another passenger is going bananas. This one's a man, and he too is having an attack of some sort. Though Fred administers nitrous and assures the man and the flight crew that the man will be fine to make it to Frankfurt, the stricken man still whinges and whines, so the flight crew calls for an emergency landing in Shannon, Ireland. Now Shannon is less than 90 minutes from our final destination, and the general feeling on board is that dude really should have tried to stick it out, rather than majorly inconvenience an entire plane full of people. And maybe that sounds insensitive, but the, he seemed okay. Even the flight attendants seemed pretty put out by the whole debacle. By the time we land in Shannon, host the paramedics, and refuel, don't know if you've ever been on a plane when it's refueling, but it takes far longer than you think, we taxi for 20 minutes, and then we take off again. Nearly every passenger on the flight has missed their connection, myself included. Leah, who is at home tracking the flight, only sees the flight status has been updated to Emergency Landing, and is understandably freaking out, though I have no way of communicating with her. I'm still airborne over Frankfurt at 1.20am, when somewhere below, my scheduled flight to Barcelona takes off without me, my checked luggage with it. We land in Frankfurt at last. After standing for 90 minutes in a long line of irate passengers, I am rerouted to Barcelona. I have just enough time in between to assure Leah that I'm okay, and to brief my booking agent on my current situation. Surely I'm not the first person to notice that from 37,000 feet, Barcelona looks exactly like a giant circuit board. I also have a nice aerial view of the Swiss Alps, but I'm so exhausted I can't really enjoy it. By the time I arrive at the station to board my train from Barcelona to Castellon, I'm somewhat delirious. Every flight I've been on these past two days has either been delayed or cancelled entirely, and I've missed four separate connections. The final train trip is a two-hour ride to Castillon, where I have been assured that someone will be present upon my arrival to drive me to my hotel, where I plan to sleep the sleep of the dead. I look at the screen announcing departures, and my train is Demorada. Given my luck in the events of the past 36 hours... I don't need to know Spanish to know what that means. I ask a wild-eyed conductor how long until the next train to Castillon leaves. He says, no problem. No problem. Arrival at last, 37 hours, four flights, one bus, two trains, and four countries later. No sleep, wearing the same clothes. By coincidence, I run into my friends Thurston Moore and James Blackshaw in the hotel lobby while I'm checking in. We're all in town to play the same festival. We catch up briefly, and upon hearing of my adventure, they tell me to go to bed and that they'll see me tomorrow. I'm sort of bummed to miss their sets later this evening, but there is absolutely no way. Next morning I wake at the Mindoro Hotel in Castillon, and somehow manage to get myself up for an ungodly 10 a.m. sound check. But the venue is beautiful and the sound is great, and though I've been around long enough to know that a sound check at a festival... Is rendered pretty much moot after nine other sound checks and 11 hours, but I choose to remain encouraged nonetheless. I walk around Castillon and buy some bananas and a can of lemon Fanta. Fanta is ubiquitous all over Europe and has a really interesting origin story. It was created in Germany when the ingredients used to make coke became scarce right before the war. Germany, in a showing of remarkable fecundity, concocted the drink using ingredients they had an abundance of at the time, namely, whey, and apple pomace. I've since developed a taste for Fanta. I very quickly check my email from the hotel lobby, very quickly because email costs 35 cents a minute, and I'm getting picked up in just a few minutes for the airport in Pisa. I make sure to check emails from my booking agent and my wife, and I save anything non-pressing for later. In Pisa, I play one of the best shows of my touring life. I always seem to have great shows in Italy, Tonight is an amazing old bombed-out church, and the attentive, standing-room-only crowd is dead silent except for loud applause. I sell all of my merch, everything. I actually have more customers than CDs, so a few fans leave empty-handed. Great! But this means I have to somehow have a new box of merch sent somewhere en route. I won't go into that whole story now, but the short version is I never actually received any more merch for the tour because the box that was shipped to me was always one city behind for the entire trip, rerouted at least seven times, and never actually reaching me until I was back home in Kentucky weeks later. Prior to that, this little package followed me to Bologna, York, Glasgow, Amsterdam, Helsinki, Brussels, and Utrecht. Geneva is the birthplace of Pesto. There are a lot of 13th century medieval structures still standing here, And though I've never been a person who takes pictures, I find myself wishing I'd brought a camera along. I learned from some new friends that fettuccine alfredo is an American invention, same as french fries or pork fried rice. My new friends laugh when I tell them that I like it. No one in Italy has ever eaten that, they say. But food in general is extraordinary in Italy. Like Guinness off the tap in Dublin, it's incomparable to the American equivalent. And I say that as someone who grew up in New York with an Italian grandmother. In Capri, I eat a lunch of homemade pasta ragu cooked by my friend Giacomo's grandmother with tomatoes grown on her farm and with beef from cattle raised in her village. Needless to say, it's an unforgettable meal, one of many. I am recognized at a pizzeria in Ravenna. The waiter approaches me with a program from the theater where I had played the night before and points to the picture of me asking if it's me and I say yes. Soon he brings out the whole staff and they all take pictures with me. As this particular pizzeria has a Facebook page, I expect to get some ribbing from my wife over this later. A few days later, I am on a bus through the English countryside. It's uncomfortable and cramped, but I'd be lying if I said it wasn't a relief to be around people who spoke English for the first time in two weeks. A few minutes into the trip, I'm suddenly very warm. Now, I'm unusually hot-natured. I think I mentioned this before. I have a rare talent for being able to sense when the temperature rises a single degree. So I'm sort of accustomed to being uncomfortable in situations like these, but I soon notice I'm not the only one in agony. A man sitting across from me reading a novelization of the television show 24 catches my eye, and we silently commiserate. He makes the, it's hot in here face, and mimes fanning himself. A row up from him, a woman is pulling at her collar. She too does the universal, is it hot in here or is it just me, expression, And now several of us are agreeing, entirely in a kind of mime. It's almost like a silent film, the way we're all able to communicate non-verbally. This is fascinating and, for me, somewhat ironic, especially since this is like the first English country I've been in in days and no one's speaking English. Just then, a very well-dressed, tall, and thin man behind us gets in on our mime act. And, noticing our discomfort, he raises a finger, again, no words, and nods and smiles and points to the bus driver, in the universal expression of, I'll take care of it, and begins to walk down to the front of the bus. Oh, thank God, he's going to go ask the driver to turn down the heat. It's sweltering in here. I lean back, confident that the problem will soon be fixed, and grateful to this stranger for agreeing to be our representative. What a cool world it is sometimes. I am just about to close my eyes when I hear a shout from the front of the bus and I look up to see our representative, inches from the bus driver's face. Are you a fucking reptile? He shouts at the driver. He then informs the driver that people are, quote, dying back there, and demands that the heat be turned down. The driver, in a remarkable show of restraint, or maybe just an English show of restraint, dutifully adjusts the temperature without another word. The man turns to us, and his face which a few seconds earlier was contorted and spitting and full of rage, instantly returns to its formerly friendly countenance. He flashes us all the OK sign and shoots us a big toothy smile like he's auditioning for a fucking Mentos commercial, and then he returns to his seat without a word. The other passengers are speechless. Uno de pazzi, I say under my breath, as I shut my eyes and allow the softly vibrating bus to rock me to sleep. Thank you for listening. We'll be wrapping up Season 2 in a month or so, and I've been trying to think of how to make the last episode of the season special. And I think, given the flood of responses and feedback I've gotten this season, it might be cool to let you kind of determine what we talk about. The last episode, I think, will be an Ask Jimmy Jack, where you can make comments or send questions about any music-related topic, and I'll try to answer or respond. So send me your controversial music opinions, questions about the music biz, questions about anything you want to discuss. Now that's about three or four episodes away, I guess, so you have time. After that, we'll likely be breaking for the summer and hopefully be back in the fall. I'd like to keep the podcast going, but who knows? Don't forget our latest poll question. What is an album you did not like or even hated, only to come back to it years later and find that it absolutely kicks ass? Especially if it's an artist that you generally really like, who released one album you just didn't care for, only to have it blow your mind a few years later. Very quickly, here are a few recommended new releases. I get sent a lot of music from friends, and though there's never enough time in the day to hear it all, I always prioritize things sent to me by my friend, the music writer, Morgan Enos. And when Morgan sent me an album called Idiom by Canadian composer, saxophonist, flautist, Anna Weber, with an email that just said, my jaw is on the floor. What is this music? I was, of course, intrigued. As soon as I began listening to Idiom, I understood both Morgan's enthusiasm and his loss for words. Idiom is some dizzyingly intricate and fascinating music. To what extent we can separate the improvisations from the score is beside the point, as Weber and her group traverse these lines with incredible virtuosity and style. In 2021, Weber speaks her own musical language, and I can think of no higher praise than that. That's Anna Weber with two B's, album is Idiom. Now speaking of friends, I've been loving the latest album by my pal Chris Forsyth, Rare Dreams, Solar Live, 22718. This is an archival release by Chris and a sort of power trio version of his solar motel band, recorded live at Cafe Auto with the trio of Forsyth and the Sun Watchers rhythm section of Jason Robira and bassist Peter Curlin. I'm always impressed by Chris's ability to surround himself with the very best players to realize his work. He's kind of like the Art Blakey of Psych Rock, and this release is further evidence. Two Neil Young covers are a nice touch, but the real highlights are a scorching version of Dreaming in the Non-Dream, and a killer version of Longtime Jam Vehicle, the first 10 minutes of Cocksucker Blues. Definitely check it out. James Brandon Lewis's brand new album, Jessup Wagon, with his intergenerational Red Lily ensemble, has been getting a ton of play around here lately. You always know a record's gonna be worth hearing when you see the names William Parker or Chad Taylor on it, but also gotta credit cellist Chris Hoffman and cornetist Kirk Knufke for their part in bringing Lewis's confident, and commanding, deep, groovy, and thunderous tunes to life. The final track, G is my favorite, one of two tracks featuring Parker playing the jimbri. Experiment Station is also a knockout track. A side note, Jessup Wagon earns the distinction of being the rare jazz album with spoken word bits that don't make me want to hit the skip button. Excellent record. Lastly, Teenage Fan Club's latest album, Endless Arcade, is released this month. It's the band's first without co-founding songwriter Gerard Love, and that definitely gave me some pause as a longtime fan, because I always loved the Jerry songs. But I needn't have worried too much, as this is another excellent Fanny's album that continues their late career victory lap. The long solo on opener Home is alone worth the price of admission. It was driving me crazy because the guitar was reminding me of something I couldn't place until I realized what it reminded me of. It was Elliot Randall's legendary solo in Reelin' in the Years. Elsewhere, the tunes, harmonies, and playing are as irresistible as ever, Well, while I'm not sure this one will displace 2016's Here as my favorite Fanny's LP of the millennium, I expect to be playing this thing to death all summer. Is there any band that sounds better in the summertime than Teenage Fan Club? I mean, besides the dead, of course. That's all for now. You can find me on Twitter at JimmyJackToth and on Patreon at patreon.com slash thetothzone. If you're not already a patron, please do consider pledging and keep this podcast ad-free. Tiers begin at only $5 a month and earn you lots of cool stuff, including early access to each new episode of The Toth Zone. You can also reach me at thetothzone at outlook.com. Thank you for sticking around. I hope you're all doing great and feeling fine. See you next episode. Till then, this is the Toast Zone.